All right. So today on the podcast, we have Leo Rex. How are you doing, man? Very well. Glad to be here. It's funny. So, you know, you didn't know much about my podcast and I didn't know a lot about your podcast and somebody had recommended in my comment section, like, oh, you should have this guy Leo on. I was like, sure, I'll look into it. And a lot of people recommend, you know, various guests and, you know, sometimes I make it happen, sometimes I don't. But I, I saw your channel and it was interesting because you kind of have, you are clearly an intelligent guy, but you also have relatable to me a almost like a neuroticism about like health and, and science that is I think rare in the YouTube, you know, field, you just don't see that too much. So as I was watching you talk about certain things, I, I just I really related and not even some areas are a little out of my wheelhouse. Um, if you know, Greg Knuckles, one of my favorite quotes I've heard from him is he said something along the lines of people are very good at knowing when somebody is more intelligent than them on a certain topic or more knowledgeable on a certain topic, but they're bad at knowing like when you have two people who are more knowledgeable, who is better between the two. And that's, you know, it's definitely in fitness. You'll, you'll, if you're new to fitness, you see this person who clearly knows a lot more than you and somebody else who clearly knows a lot more than you. But if they're debating, you're kind of like, I don't really know, you know, and there's certain topics you go into like nootropics and stuff like that. That is, you know, again, not, a huge interest of mine and it's kind of out of my wheelhouse. So there's certain areas where I just kind of have to defer. Um, but I was definitely, as I was watching some of your podcasts, looking forward to delving into it. But for people who don't know your podcast, let's just get a little background from you. Oh yeah. I, I started a YouTube channel about eight months ago called Leo and longevity, which is, uh, about, um, well, anyway, the, the, the channel basically has informative content on mostly two pop topics. One is, uh, trying to extend life in humans. And the second is trying to improve well-being, well-being being subjective well-being across lifespan. Subjective well-being being the economic marker of happiness. So I've been trying personally to have a happier life for the last, uh, well, it must be over 15 years consciously. And I also, in, in the process of that, um, lived a life that was not very, very healthy. And as my perspective changed, I sort of created this channel to both encourage myself and document my journey learning about these two subjects. And, and roughly how old are you now, Leo? I don't know anymore. I stopped counting, but I'm in my early 30s. And there's a reason I don't know. I noticed that in among centenarian studies, most centenarians lose count of their age, or a lot of them lose count of their age. And I do think that's very helpful. I've even heard centenarians specifically say that. I don't think age, uh, for, I'm sure you know about uh, the Horvath clock and uh, chronological versus uh, biological age. Mm -hmm. uh, have you heard of them before? So like, certainly the difference between chronological and biological age, yeah. not the clock. The clock was started by uh, Steve Horvath and now there are several companies online that you can uh, measure your, uh, what they call your epigenetic or methylation age, which is supposed to be your, your physical age, for example. I'm certain, even though I haven't done the test, that I am older than I actually am because of the way I live my life. So um, anyway, basically, I don't think it's uh, very useful to keep track of chronological age. It really sets people into, I think, perspectives mentally that um, uh, limit them. Like, for example, if I sit and say I'm in my early 30s or my mid 30s, say, which I'm not, but it would say I was in my mid 30s, especially. And say I decided now my background is in social sciences. So I was a student in social science. I never studied hard sciences, I mean, except a few courses in college. So what if I said suddenly, hey, I'd like to go uh, do uh, an undergrad or a master's degree in chemistry 
well, I can tell myself oh, I'm 33. I'm going to be with a bunch of kids in the class. And I'm going to be behind. And my life's supposed to go like this. I'm supposed to be married. I'm supposed to have kids. None of that means anything if I was going to die at 70 versus 100. And if I was going to feel good at 100. So I try to stay away from that mentally. Some of the research I've seen on centenarians has gotten a little bit clouded in recent years. From what I saw, of, of when they look at the people who or like the areas that have the highest number of centenarians, one of the things that they find is a lack of documentation of like a birth certificate and leading people to question if they're truly centenarians or if people are like, they're just actually very old and people are just saying that they're centenarians. I don't know if you've seen much on that. Uh, you know, I have, I'll tell you. So first of all, I mean, this is very normal because the places where there are centenarians are places that did not document births at that time, like Japan and uh, Southern Italy, especially places that were remote. Most of these places are remote and they're not in cities either. Um, for example, my grandmother didn't know when she was born. She was born in Dubai. Uh, we still don't know her birth date. My father, we don't know his birth date. My father's only in his mid sixties. So this is very normal. But uh, I think maybe you're talking about the French, the fam famous French case in which the lady, the centenarian, the eldest person in the world was doubted uh, and thought to be her own daughter. And in fact, a lot of people have investigated this and it does not seem to be the case. I really don't think so. In fact, in particular, Walter Longo specifically went into that case uh, uh, himself, Walter Longo being one of the people who study centenarians, near Barzillai being the most famous one. But what I have noticed which is questionable. Sorry for my dogs barking. I have a bunch of dogs. But what I have noticed is that genetics, see, where are these centenarians living? I mean, I'm very interested in genetics and genetics have a huge impact on how long we sure. live. These centenarians are living in places that may have genetics that extend life. So like, for example, the FOXO3A gene, that's very common among East Asians, which is also very common in Japan, therefore. So that's something that hasn't been looked at. Yeah, I mean, if, if anybody has seen more than a handful of my podcasts, I talk about genetics all the time. And I often talk about it in reference to, you know, one's ability to gain muscle and lose fat and whatnot, you know, success in bodybuilding. But in reality, that's just because that's what a lot of the, po the podcast topics are. But genetics, I say, reign supreme in many areas and longevity is certainly one of them. Um, Something I did want to get into before touch that you mentioned, like based on how you would live before you think maybe you're older than your chronological age. What was your background? I know you were, you were, you were an arm wrestler, right? Yes. So what uh, is your experience in terms of, I know you said at one point you were 240 pounds. So just to give people a background of like your athletic background, um, maybe as far as like super supplementation and things like that. Sure. Um, okay, that's that's easy to describe. So basically, when I was a uh, forty, or I guess when I was twelve, I started lifting weights mainly to protect myself in high school because I was bullied for being half American and half Arab. I was either in America as an Arab or in the Arab world as an American, and I was constantly bullied. So I wanted to protect myself. I started lifting weights, and um, by the time I was uh, uh, in eleventh grade, I had uh, squatted over four hundred five for sure. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was over four plates and I had deadlifted close to 500, very close. So I was one of the strongest people probably in the city in Dubai at the time. And uh, although we didn't have competitions, I used to use Westside Barbell. Mm -hmm. I, was, uh, I mean, I learned how to train from Westside Barbell. And then I learned how to eat to become strong from bodybuilders. And I learned how to use drugs from bodybuilders, but I didn't use drugs yet. I was very, as you can tell, I'm a neurotic and uh, 
you know, um, peculiar. So I was one of those people that was a 14-year-old on the steroid boards that was thought to be like some mastermind that knows everything, you know. But right, I wasn't right. telling people stuff, but I was, I knew more than everybody else on the boards most of the time. So I was on a, anabolic uh, muscle, anabolic minds, uh, British the pharma, one, all of the boards back in the day. And I never used steroids. And, and eventually what happened was my life got a little bit, uh, I, I moved away from lifting and I had other focuses, which were in business. So I went to uh, Carnegie Mellon to study business in uh, the Tepper School of Business, ranked fourth in undergrad when I entered. And I studied there. I gave up lifting for a while. And then I went to the London School of Economics, where I did a master's degree in decision science for two years. And I managed the behavioral research laboratory of the LSE as a, as a paid employee. And I was a research, a research assistant as a paid employee. After that, I went into private equity. And then I was like, hey, I'm 22. I've never tried these steroids. I haven't been lifting for a bunch of years, but I haven't tried them. So I'd like to try them. So I tried them a little bit, experimented very shortly. And then I stopped again. Then I started lifting again when I was about 25. Within a month, natural, I was back at 405 squat. Then I stopped again. And then about 26, I started arm wrestling until I was almost 30. And then I gave up uh, two years ago or so. So when I was arm wrestling, for three years straight, I used anabolics. I used all the information that I had gained over 15 years of learning. And I was also, of course, a close friend of Scott Mendelson, who was uh, one of, I mean, you know who Scott is? Yeah. Scott being the only person I think of all the raw and suited uh, and the shirted bench press record in history. And so I was training with Scott and he also turned uh, went into arm wrestling and Vosgan Sugoi in the top uh, arm wrestler. So I did that for three years and then I realized that I was getting older and I wanted to focus on my health. So I left that and that's where a lot of my uh, videos that involve lifting come in and especially on, around anabolics. Because I was lucky because of my neuroticism that I discovered, for example, that high blood pressure would hurt the kidneys. And I noticed that a lot of the bodybuilders died of kidney failure. Yeah. So once I was arm wrestling and, and on gear properly, I immediately, you know, what I did is I ordered uh, angiotensin receptor blockers from India online. Oh, wow. They wouldn't prescribe it to me. I went to a bunch of doctors and my, my blood pressure was 170 over you know, 110. And they wouldn't I, prescribe you anything? They'd say it was white coat syndrome. Something's going on. They'll go back home. I tried so many times. I said, you know what? Wow. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do this to myself. I'm not stupid. But unfortunately, I was a little bit. I didn't know that much about medication, but I, I was lucky just to choose the right ARB. So I kept that there the whole three years. Protected me a lot. I always kept my blood pressure right. And now afterwards, while I've been studying longevity, I've learned so much about different kinds of medications. And I see it's such an unfortunate thing that bodybuilders are unaware or averse to using medications to protect themselves. Like they, they'll use Novodex right. or aromatase inhibitor, but they won't use azetamide, which inhibits the absorption of dietary cholesterol and the reabsorption of cholesterol from bile foods. Why? It doesn't make you weaker. It it's been shown to cause lipolysis of fat in the liver which is clearly something all, almost all the pro bodybuilders have. But they're very averse. I mean, they'll, they'll tell me, is there a supplement I can take? Well, right. do you want to your drug regimen? Can I give you a testosterone supplement? How will that do? Yeah. You know what I mean? So that, what ARB did you end up taking? I was taking Valsartan, which is the most selective of the 81 over 82 receptors, which is good because right. the 82 receptor has a lot of pro-growth and pro-gabergic activity. And one of the problems with long-term steroid use is you end up in a, sympathetic nervous drive all the time, even if you're not on trend, even if you're just on a high testosterone. So one other thing I learned, for example, is I, I learned this actually two, three, oh, right after Valsartan, but I chose the wrong medication. I chose a 10 
which was a beta blocker. So I used right. to use it after my workouts to lower my heart rate, to lower the potential left ventricular hypertrophy and so on. Later, I realized if I used propranolol, which entered the brain, I could inhibit some of that stress response that's making the amygdala overactive and disconnecting it from the rest of the brain, which is what you see in a lot of the brain scans of uh, current steroid users. And do you still take Valsartan? I take Telmisartan sometimes. Sometimes I take Valsartan and I Pioglitazor, which is a PPP. So Telmisartan, the advantage of that is that it, it has some activity at what's called a PP. Uh, I, I peroxisome something, PPA receptor gamma. It has activity there that's significant, and it has a little bit of activity at PPA delta. PPA delta is the target of carterine, if you've heard of mm -hmm. GW. Yeah. So that's the advantage of telmisartan. It's all in one pill. But if you really want to be efficient, telmisartan is not as selective as the 81 over 82. So the best thing for, for clients, for example, that are very serious, I ask their doctors to consider valsartan plus a pyoglitazone, which is a diabetes medication. That how, did you, how did you feel about the uh, big Valsartan recalls that happened in the last couple of years? I, I, it happened to me while I was taking it. I don't, I don't even know, know what the issue was. At the time, I, I, think, I think at the time it happened. No, I just stopped. I had stopped a few months after. I don't even know what the cause was. I mean, right. there, was metformin, there was a metformin recall because there was reactive nitrogen species in the metformin. People are eating bacon every day. What do you, yeah. I mean, people are like over, there's not like these things that like a lot of mercury, nothing happens to me. So yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised just given your neuroticism that you didn't. So they suspect that it was actually contaminated since 2012, the Valsartan. Um, so yeah. And some of them like NDMA, NDMA. Yeah. And um, what else? There was one other one they had found later. Um and they, was, they weren't sure if that was just because of reusing solvents or if that was just made in the process. Um, but I mean, it was a pretty big deal for a while. I mean, it was, you know, all over that they recalled them. So, so, so my, my feeling on this was that it was the following. Actually, I recall when this happened exactly. I had probably stopped weightlifting and begun my, my healthy lifestyle. By the way, I had a shaved head then. Now I have like long hair. So okay. it's like, it's been like, uh, you know. so when I stopped, I remember it was about six months later that the recall happened. I didn't even look into it that much. The reason why is this. I was actually at the time just finally prescribed. You know how I got prescribed Valsartan? I went into Cedar sinai after having stopped everything and went to a cardiologist. And this guy was awesome. So I finally found a guy that was intelligent, well-educated. And I went to him and I said, listen, I've been ordering Valsartan for three years from India. I take it every day. I take 160 milligrams. I will continue to take it whether you want or not. Check my blood pressure. It's 120 over 80 with the 180. Can you prescribe it to me? We did a cardiac MRI, we did a bunch of stuff, and he finally prescribed it to me. But that had happened right after the... So when the recall happened, I was already getting a pharmaceutical, not generic Valsartan. But because of the three years of me ordering metformin from India, for example, generic metformin from India and generic Valsartan from India, I was not trusting in the products very much. I mean... You have to understand the generic products, and you can really see this with things that affect the brain. Like generic Adderall is far inferior to brand name Adderall, far inferior. It's in, I mean, anyone who has a very observant mind would notice that. And the reason is because the brand name ones tend to be from bigger pharmaceutical companies that have more exact processes of manufacturing. So for example, to give a, a good example, Adderall. Adderall is a mixture of one molecule, amphetamine, but two rotations of the molecule called isomers, the dextral rotation and the level rotation, which are symmetric opposites. 
they're supposed to be in a certain um, order. It's about 75% one way and 25% the other way. The generic ones will get it a bit wrong. There's slight inconsistencies. If you have any kind of molecules that like, uh, you know, some atoms detach or something like that, it changes the activity of the molecule. Like look at steroids. Tiny differences in the molecular structure of steroids make some of them agonized receptors we wouldn't expect. Like some of them are more, more potent at the progesterone receptor than progesterone. Like ment, the, the, what Tony Hughes was popularizing a while ago. A cousin of ment specifically. More potent than progesterone. So just small changes change the molecule. So I'm aware of that. I just was doing my best. Now I take all pharma, uh, pharmaceutical brand name medications and I'm diagnosed with a bunch of illnesses like epilepsy, high, high cardiovascular disease, diabetes. How do you ensure you get the brand name? Because I know a lot of people, at least in America, you know, they have their insurance and insurance will only cover generics. So how are you ensuring that you're getting pharmaceutical grade? You either get the doctor to, so for example, for Adderall, you can get the doctor to require the uh, brand name. Then the insurance may reject and then you may have to pay cash. So for yeah. example, most of the, like, I spend, you know, thousands of dollars. I mean, I, I spend over $10,000 probably a year on medications. Wow. Because yeah, I've seen that. PCSK9. Say again? Mainly because of the PCSK9, which is about five, but still. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it is it is crazy when you see how expensive the drugs in the United States are. I mean, it's just mind boggling. And, you know, if you don't have insurance, you're kind of screwed. But even if you do have insurance, like I said, the large majority of them do require you to use generic if it's available. And it's just, it's tough. I mean, there's not all you can do. When, when that does happen, you should study the generics. And sometimes there are people that study the generics. They especially do this, for example, with things that affect the brain. So the different generic brands of Adderall have different um, known features. Like some, are, some have more levoamphetamine and some have more dextroamphetamine. At least it feels that way. So sometimes you can research about the generics, but I always recommend the brand name someone can afford. Unfortunately, with, this is one of the reasons in life that people should accumulate wealth. It's mainly for their health and their yeah. family. The, the health of the family. Yeah. I mean, you know, you said you come from like an investment banking background um, and, you know, obviously with my career, you know, I'm in a position to, you know, make a very good living. But when I talk to friends about it, I'm like, dude, like I just, I don't have an interest in buying like a $200,000 car. Like I don't have an interest in like these like really extravagant things, but I do like, I don't mind spending a lot of money on like supplements if I think that they can help health wise or other things like doctor's appointments and, you know, to see the best doctor. Cause it's like, if you don't, if I don't have my health, like, what is the point? You know, like, it just doesn't matter. So, um, and I've just never been really big into the, uh, I don't know, like the superficial things anyway. So. Uh, that's a great, that's such a great topic you just brought up. Really wonderful. I'd, I'd love to talk about it a little bit. One, yeah. one thing, like you're talking about materialism, basically, you're saying you weren't naturally attracted to materialism. I have never met somebody that was materialistic, that was happy inside. <laughs> yeah. I've never, I, I've known tons of materialistic people. I've, they, they tend to be like, uh, they, they get good moods, but they're not like, um, they don't have a contentment and a kind of, the only people I've met that have that kind of thing is people who have meaning in their lives. They live for a reason, like you, for example, donate to charities every time you have this uh, podcast. They have some kind of uh, reason for living, you know? So that's one thing. The second thing is health is definitely wealth and wealth is needed for health sometimes. And more important than that, just like you said, it is the most important thing for us because maybe we can't notice it at our age yet. But by our 50s, and this is one of the reasons I don't squat anymore, I don't deadlift, I probably probably wish I never did, or, or if I did, I took it further, is we'll start to be in acute pain, chronic pain after our 50s. And if you can avoid this, you can have a much better life.
And they're, they're people like in their 30s, they think, oh, the 50s is so far away. I wouldn't be able to have fun anyway. No, you'll be able to have fun. You'll have yeah. wealth. You can travel. Trust me, life goes on. But you don't want to be in pain. Now, this is exactly why I'm interested in this nootropic subject, which you opened the discussion with. Yeah. When you were saying that you, and I, and I want to ask you questions about what you meant, but the, the, the reason being is this. With health, it's chronic pain, hassle, uh, quality, mainly pain right uh, qual uh, what you can do with mindset it's a huge thing because the way i usually describe it to people is uh, i think of it because i wear glasses if my glasses were like smudged and i wake up in the morning like i just clean my glasses before i spoke to you so i can see properly if my glasses were smudged and i can't see the world right and i i knew i know people like this they wear glasses they never clean their glasses that's crazy you can't see what's going on you don't why would you do that so sometimes the brain may be like that also for people for me it was like that from birth because i am not from birth maybe but from my childhood i had certain like uh like you say neuroticism things like that and i learned with time that if i could manipulate these things with supplements or drugs i could have a more balanced and more uh better subjective well-being in the long term you know Basically, yeah, so that's, sure. that's my main reason. I even feel that that has more bang for the, for the buck than health for many people. Yeah. yeah, I have a hard time now, you know, so I'm only 29, but I do have a hard time doing much of anything that I feel is going to affect my long-term health, um, whether that be, you know, as far as like organ damage or anything like that, but also it just like you said, pain. So you know, I've been around some people, both patients and family members who have just suffered chronic pain. And man, like, and I have myself as well at times, and uh, we can get into that later. But it's something where I, I don't like to be like morbid <laughs> on the podcast. But like, if you've, like, there's a very different feeling from like, oh, okay, I got hurt in like a fight or something. And I have this pain for a couple hours or days to chronic pain just day in day out and i mean i just seen people who are just miserable because of it and so um you know like i think uh jujitsu is pretty cool right and i've considered doing it and then i i look at like i've talked to some people and they're like no you will get injured like it's going to happen and i'm just like man i just i don't need also you know again being a dentist like if my back or my hands or anything gets screwed up like it's a big liability um but I don't know. I, I'm probably too risk averse at this point, but again, I would just rather stick with things where it's like, you know, I'm just going to try to be pain-free and healthy and things can still happen. You never know. Like I could, you know, obviously get in an accident or whatever, but I'm, I'm trying to put the odds in my favor. Exactly. I mean, you got to play. When I was 14 years old, this is what I did. I sat, I mean, this is just how I, I sat and I said, how do I want to die? What do I want when I went at the end of my life? What do I want to have achieved? Exactly. And I wrote it down on a piece of paper and I worked backwards and I tried to go all the way back to what I would need to do at 14. Mm -hmm. And I kept updating this list until I was 21, probably when I had an existential crisis and I, you know, I gave up for a while. But basically to not to, to you to be conscious beings and not try to plan this and, and make sure that we have the best lives overall in terms of cumulative subjective well-being, which is not, by the way, cumulative hedonistic pleasure. I've tried that. That doesn't work. It's it's subjective well it's well-being overall would be crazy. You mentioned a couple of things about affecting long you're you're reluctant to do things that may affect your long-term health. You brought up Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which we, we should talk about. But the only thing that I will ever do really for this anymore, sometimes like for example, I had a client recently. A lot of my clients are addicts or or trying to de uh, defeat addiction. 
which uh, is something I'm very interested in myself growing up in a family with uh, with addicts and, and growing up around it. So, um, so, so sometimes, for example, I'll try a drug. Like I tried recently Tianeptine. Horrible, by the way. Don't anybody use this drug. Anyone listens to this. It's not, not even fun. It's a stupid drug. But I tried this just to know what was going on with the client. And I probably caused some toxicity to my brain. I know that. But I increased neurogenesis so much and I have so many neuroprotective molecules that I'm not too worried. The other scenario that will happen in is sometimes I work a little bit too hard and I know I, like, for example, you know, I was messing with my circadian rhythm recently. Mm-hmm. And I think I do this only for sacrifices for family and things like that. But you mentioned, um, you mentioned morbidity, you know, my mind can someone can sometimes be a bit uh, macabre or, mo- or morbid, actually. I, I think about death a lot and have yeah. since I was a child. And I've tried to think about the meaning of life. In fact, that's why I don't know if you noticed some, some of my videos, you can see I have a belt buckle that's a skull. And the reason is that's a memento mori to remind me of the, of the inevitability of the end of life, which really doesn't teach much, but it teaches me to remember the long term. It doesn't tell me to appreciate the moment because I've noticed that doesn't uh, help much. Hmm. Um, in terms of uh, fighting, I also joined Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in LA where Gracie was for two weeks, but I was still muscular. I was still an arm wrestler. So I was 230 pounds and extremely strong. So when I did it, they had to put me with the biggest guy. And every time we would fall, I started realizing because I was an arm wrestler, so my shoulders were, you know, very peculiar. So I could feel what was happening in my shoulders. And then I did some research. I was like, I don't think this is actually healthy. Because I thought kickboxing or boxing or something like that, TBIs were the issue. And Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has no TBI, so it shouldn't be too bad. I did some research. They all live in crippling back pain. They all have so many problems later in life. And it's so popular in Hollywood, by the way, here in LA. Everyone's doing it. It's really popular. Yeah. So, and that's the thing. So, I have a wrestling background, and I figured, like, it's funny with different sports because, you know, you can play tennis your whole life. You can play golf your whole life. When you're done wrestling in college or high school like <laughs> you're done right you're, you don't have 35 year old guys be like hey you want to wrestle so jujitsu has become very popular with the kind of um increasing popularity with mma and, and things like that and i thought like i went to one class is just to kind of like see how rolling was and it was fun it was actually a lot of fun but again i just was i don't know if you know mike Isertel, but i i actually had gone with him and like I had met him there and he was like, yeah, like you will get hurt. Like stuff's going to happen. And I just, I don't know, man. I just, I don't want to de- deal with that. I, you know, the nice thing with lifting is it's funny. I've had um, like a goal to like dunk a basketball and um, like a mile to dunk a basketball. Oh, how tall am I? Six one. So it should be easy. Right. But I have, I have no ups. Um, so I, but what I noticed is I was doing, I was squatting every day. I was doing like a Bulgarian type system and I was squatting every day, you know, over 400 pounds and no knee pain at all. Three weeks into jump training, my knees were killing me. And it's, you know, that dynamic, you know, just the constant force on there. And so when you look at uh, injury rates for sports per 1000 hours played, it's like soccer is like number one, and then it goes down and down, but weightlifting and powerlifting are still significantly higher than bodybuilding because it's usually lighter weights, higher reps. And so for me, I'm like, this is good activity. <laughs> and I'm going to probably stick with that. I have so many, that's such an interesting uh, thought, discussion. So we'll start with the, start with the last thing you said, which is, you know, uh, powerlifters, strong men having more injuries. It's not just injuries. huh? It's very interesting. Like 
So lifting a heavier weight means that you have more tension in your vascular system in the moment. I mean, maybe people don't realize. I think maybe I'm the first person in fitness to ever talk about this, I think. Never heard anyone. I've been following it since I was, you know, uh, 2001, which is that sometimes when people lift weights, their, their systolic blood pressure will reach 400. Oh, yeah. And nephrologists specifically, I have citations in my pay in my uh, YouTube channel. Nephrologists speculate that that itself causes acute and serious injury to the kidneys. And if you look at, uh, for example, o Olympic athletes, you find that the powerlifters, I mean, the, the Olympic lifters don't have as much longevity as cardiovascular exercise people uh, at all. In fact, they often die of heart disease. So I'm not sure that it's lifting the kind of weights that I was lifting was very good for the cardiovascular system. And we talk about this on my channel a lot with Nick Trujilli because we're both now sort of retired, but we want to be healthy. And I think the way you're approaching it, sort of keeping the muscle mass to keep the glucose, to have some place for the glucose to go, while at the same time having enough tension that your bones hopefully have some reason to maintain their mass. I think that's the, that's the key. That and then, of course, the not excessive HIT kind of... Uh, or whatever that is sprinting and then slowing down you know what i mean you're not a fan of like interval training then no, i am a fan of that i'm oh, a fan of two together i think okay gotcha. more than more than i am a fan of for example marathon running or oh yeah sure. i don't think that stuff is very good for you yeah no i don't think i mean i think it's shown pretty um it's i think at least two papers i've seen on it but it seems to be almost common knowledge now that uh distance you know endurance athletes have higher uh, frequencies of AFib, things like that. Um, obviously they can have, I mean, the whole thing with athletic heart, you kind of can get into a debate of how much is pathologic versus physiologic. I mean, that's a whole it has fibrosis. If it has fibrosis, which, which remember that one guy I forgot his name, he got fibrosis in his heart. He was this famous guy who was running. I don't know. I'm sorry. To yeah. Well, just that it's, it's a, it's funny. I think just given the conversation, we might lose some listeners, which is fine because one, this is way more interesting to me than this, like, hey, man, like, what's the most optimal split, you know, and, um, but and I, I think a lot of my listeners are on the more intelligent end, and, and I think a lot will keep up with it. But I think I am more open now, you know, when I was 18 years old, and somebody would try to tell me like lifting, like the way I was lifting might not be good for me. It's like, no, like, it's fine. And it's like, you know, you look at it, and you're like, well, no, the way I maybe deadlifting is okay for some maybe, but like the way I was doing it was almost surely not, <laughs> not great. Um, I am definitely a proponent of, of weightlifting. And I will say, I don't know if you, I mean, I've talked to a lot of cardiologists over the years and I am kind of amazed at the lack of knowledge on some specifically in regards to exercise and, uh, like weightlifting. Like I had a cardiologist tell me one time, don't lift more than a hundred pounds. And like, that was it just like that flat advice. And I was like, how how are you this far along as far as like all the education you've had and you don't see the problem with just generically saying don't lift more than 100 pounds is that a, a 100 pound curl which might be a little hard is that a 100 pound deadlift which would feel like air what education yeah, yeah. are you talking about because you you went to dentistry school after your undergrad right correct so you spent how many years in school six years or seven so four years undergrad, four years dental school, and then a four years dental school. So you actually have more education than doctors, for example, time spent being taught by, you know, professors or something like that, right? So med school is four years as well. And then yeah. another residency. Three, three years. And then they train on location. Med school is not four years in the US, is it? No, it's it not. is. Yeah. 
Are you sure it is four years? Oh, in the UK, sorry, I also studied in the UK. So in the UK, it's a different system. Maybe I'm getting something wrong. The point is this, how are they that educated? I'm not completely sure that they're that educated at all. I've never thought much of their curriculums. Basically, they are practitioners that deal with acute problems. They are trained to be practitioners, not academics. They, they don't, most of them do not read articles after they graduate right. from school, ever. So fifth, sometimes you need to get it. For example, Fouad Abiyad right now, he has a young, I don't know if he's a nephrologist, but I just found his doctor, someone sent him to me. He's a young guy. So he knows, for example, about SGLT2 inhibitors that were just approved in 2013. But if this guy graduated 10 years, uh, uh, a little bit before, three three years before, he probably wouldn't know right. about it at all. They sure. never go on Google Scholar. They never search their specialty and see by chronological order, what's most recent, just read the titles. They just don't do it because they are practitioners that are meant to like deal with acute problems. They're not meant to prevent, prevent us from harming ourselves long-term. In fact, cardiologists, the glaring example is they, their little knowledge of lipidology. You could try to talk to a cardiologist about lipidology, they won't understand much about lipids. They don't understand much about the recent science on LDL cholesterol or triglycerides or managing them. They sometimes don't even know the medications. They don't know the difference between the different ARBs, pharmacologic effects. I mean, I think it depends on I mean, and obviously you're, you're speaking generally, I have met some very passionate doctors who do keep up with the research. Um, I know them. these are the specialists that, that, that well, that's really what I mean. Yeah. Like I, and that's the thing I'm meeting people online who are known for certain, you know, certain things that they are very interested in. So I do find those people who are very passionate and up to date on the research, but in general, yeah, I mean, there's been a, there've been a number of times where I have come across an MD and I was just like, man, like you, like we're talking on a topic that like I know quite a bit about and it's like, wow, like you, you really don't know that much in this topic. Now, again, to be fair, I don't think you can expect, and this is, I think a problem with people not being responsible for their own health. I don't think you can expect that, especially a general practitioner is going to know that much. I mean, there are so many diseases out there and so many different things to know I would never expect it. Like if you had a particular disease, it's very likely that a patient who has been dealing with their own, let's say chronic disease for 10 years may know more about that topic than a GP. In fact, if they're at all conscious and cognizant of their health and staying up to date, they probably do know more than a GP because a GP has to cover so many different things. And especially, I mean, if you, we won't get into all of the craziness with medicine in the US, but how much it's insurance driven and, and how many patients they have to see in a day you have to be on top of your own health, right? But even in some cases, I've seen specialists who I've been pretty unimpressed with as well. Uh, but that's not at all to say that I, I know everything not by a long shot. I mean, it's just, you, you know, some people just stop learning when they graduate. No, I mean, the, the, the way I come from this perspective, I, I, I appreciate you uh, making it more positive. And my statement maybe was seemed a bit extreme. What I meant to say was, for example, among the research, among the doctors, the ones that really understand the subject also publish papers on it. They're research doctors. They're MD, PhDs, yeah. usually. Those are the people that are the top in their field. MD, PhDs. There are some that are just MDs, but also they're very well known for research. But usually they have MD, PhDs. So that's number one. Number two, you could find a doctor who's up to date on information. This takes a little bit of effort researching. Like you said, you have to really, and that's what I do for my clients, whatever city they're in. I try to look at doctors' resumes, look what they published. I try to find who's the best person for them to, to go to, because this was a huge issue in my life personally. 
So that's another thing. There are certainly doctors who keep up to date, but they are in the minority, I would say, in 5% of, uh, or less. The next thing is about uh, MDs. You know, the problem, of course, being this uh, issue of authority. You know, we have a cognitive bias toward authority. If you tell someone, call someone doctor, it's a different story. Like, for example, we have somebody on YouTube. I can't remember his name, but he's one of the most uh, popular channels. I think people think he's a doctor. He's actually a uh, chiropractor. Um, Berg is his name, Alec Berg. I think his name is Berg. Anyway. Uh, Eric Berg? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, for example, just saying doctor, I mean, if you look at his comment section compared to mine, uh, it's, it's such a difference. People are like, uh, doctor, could you tell me, like, how I can save my life? I mean, they made him God. But the guy <laughs> is actually a chiropractor in a field that's actually ascientific. So just the word doctor. So then that's the issue. Now, the problem is now we have the Internet. So, of course, we have people that think they know more than they do know. So they go to the doctor and annoy him and tell him, you know, I know right, better exactly. than you. But you actually don't know how the liver works. You don't know how the heart works. You didn't get the basic science. You don't know the molecular biology, but you know a lot about your subject. So doctors get annoyed with you. Of course, that makes sense. I understand that also from their perspective. Right. But what I mean to say is this, for example, the thing that I know best so far is uh, brain health in terms of, I know more about that than longevity probably because a lot of people are obsessed with longevity. So I tried to specialize in something that my audience was interested in. So what I do know is that I've seen many psychiatrists in my life and I certainly know more than them about most of the medications they prescribe to me. I'm sure about that. In fact, I now send emails to former psychiatrists that I knew trying to reinform them or inform them in the first place about what, what they were trying to teach me. For example, some of them do not know why SSRIs even work. They literally don't know. They think it's the inhibition of CERT, the serotonin transporter, and serotonergic activity changing the person's disposition. But in reality, it's clearly in the literature, three theories, disposition, neurogenesis, making the brain more plastic, as well as a reduction in neural inflammation. Most doctors don't even know about this third part, most uh, psychiatrists, which is a problem because it's clear if you inject inflammatory cytokines in any animal, they begin to act uh, anxious or depressed. So for example, that's why if you take three grams of NAC spread throughout your day in controlled double-blind placebo-controlled studies, it shows an antidepressant effect. It reduces inflammation in the body. Same with EPA or not. Yeah, it was EPA specifically. EPA does that as well at high doses, over four grams a day. So it actually produces an antidepressant effect. So for example, these psychiatrists could be like, hey, why don't you add also a little bit of fish oil, add a little bit of uh, moringa leaf, add a little bit of something to uh, manipulate your gene transcription away from NF-kappa B. Uh, why don't you do lower your body's inflammation also? This could educate them, you know? But unfortunately, I have never met any psychiatrist who understood these level of things. Yeah, I'm not at all surprised that it's, you know, that they don't understand that. I would also say it, in regard to just the specifically the last topic you're talking about, that's definitely out of my wheelhouse. It's not an area that I would you know, even pretend to know much about. But I, I think it's tough because you, the way you learn in med school, dental school, pharmacy school, it's, I don't even know how I would describe it. It's almost like if a patient were to come to you, it would be nonsense for you to take what they say as even valuable. And, and unfortunately, that's, that's a lot of the times how it is presented. And I could see, and, and like you already pointed out, a lot of doctors will deal with these kind of nut patients who read an article, and then the Dunning-Kruger effect is like fully in effect. And this person thinks that they know a lot and they don't. And at the end of the day, it's like, it's like most people, including I'm sure both of us, think we know more in certain areas than we actually do, right? There's some topic that we feel confident in that maybe we shouldn't be so confident in. But then there's going to be other areas that we actually do know quite a lot. And it's hard. It's hard to parse it out. So I don't really try to blame like anybody, but it's a tough situation because 
we have such strong biases from whatever background we've had, you know, whether it's that patients are morons or doctors are morons, it's tough. Hmm. Well, let me give an example. For example, Jerry Brainham was a frequent uh, repeat guest on my channel and one of the nicest gentlemen I know, although we have very different political opinions, but I love him. Anyway, Jerry Brainham comes on my show all the time. He's definitely read more papers than any MD I've come across. That's not an MD PhD. I mean, it's, I've read more papers than any MD I've come across. I know that. I've read thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of papers from undergrad. I know they didn't. I used to read papers in undergrad. They didn't. Those people were in pre-med not reading papers. They were reading their textbook. I was reading papers. So I know I can tell when somebody has a background in reading papers properly and knows the history of a subject that they're specialized in, right? But also, this but, uh, number one, it's an issue becomes like if you're talking about a general practitioner versus an in, like an internist or a general practitioner, I totally understand. But when you're talking about a psychiatrist, uh, unless they're like dealing with such a wide array, like most psychiatrists are not dealing with schizophrenics, bipolars, depressives, uh, people with anxiety. Most of them somewhat specialize. And for not being on top of that, being such a limited field, I don't have an excuse for that for them, unfortunately, because... Personally, I'm very passionate about my, about anxiety and depression, and I, I try to at least be up to date, okay? And I, I try to at least know what it, what's out there. Now, what I know may be false, and certainly there's a half-life to every truth also, at least in academia, right? So I, I borrowed this phrase from Peter Atlia, who borrowed it from somewhere else, by the way, but I didn't come up with that. But the point is, there, certainly I know I may be wrong, but I, I know that like there's no recent papers I'm missing on serotonin. Okay, in the last three years, there's no big recent papers. I know that. Um, so the other thing is, like, it's not it's not just doctors. Where the we're nobody, none of us can replace doctors. I mean, for every client I work with a, with a doctor, I just mention ideas to them. Maybe they check it out. And, you know, it's their choice at the end of the day. I'm not a doctor, but what's what's interesting is academia. Also, academia is so specialized that people don't even like. For example, the serotonin researchers are unaware that systemic levels of serotonin are associated with hepatocellular carcinoma, which is liver cancer. So the, the actual serotonin researchers don't know about it. So some of them recommend people to take a lot of tryptophan or add 5-HTP, uh, which bypasses the rate-limiting step in the synthesis of serotonin. And they're not aware that it could cause uh, valvular fibrosis around the heart or on the liver because they're so specialized in one area. 5-HTP can? Certainly. Serotonin levels. 5-HTP will bypass the uh, rate-limiting step, increasing your systemic levels. You want to increase it in your brain, not in your system, which is why we use SSRIs with their side effects. Otherwise, we'd all just be taking, well, it was still, but yeah, actually, we'd all just be taking either mushrooms or, or 5-HTP all day. The reason we don't do that is because 5-HTP bypasses your ability to limit how much serotonin you have, and it's all systemic, and systemic levels are associated specifically with liver cancer and, and fibrosis in the heart. And in fact, not only that, but the analogs based off serotonin molecules are also associated with that, which is why ergot derived dopamine agonists like cabergoline, which many bodybuilders use, is associated with valvular fibrosis, which, wow. which but I was the first person to mention also in bodybuilding. No, no one ever knew about that. So pramipexol, non-ergot derived, not associated with valvular fibrosis. Of course, those are associated with valvular, valvular fibrosis at the high doses that Parkinson's, Parkinson's patients take, not at the doses right, to right. lower normal prolactin levels, but still, why pick one that isn't? One right, day? right, sure. So I know you said you've been doing it for a long time and you've been listening since you're 12. That's pretty much when I started as well. I heard you have a uh, podcast with Jerry War. I, I watched it and it was funny because 
I definitely have seen a lot of his videos like early on, you know, I got into like YouTube fitness pretty much when it all started and it was him and Jason Blaha and you know, all that stuff, which is Oh, funny. you know about Jason Blaha? We, uh, we very, very much about, yeah, a lot. So here's the thing. I spoke to Jason Blaha recently and I actually considered, and it, it's funny, he and Jerry were just like, those were kind of like the start of it for a while, you know, and they had the Natty or Nots and all that stuff. And I always considered Jason to be actually more like if you took an IQ test, I think that Jason is more intelligent than Jerry. But I also think that he has, or at least had like had some, you know, and again, totally out of my wheelhouse, but some like psychological issues, you know, and, you know, with the whole everything that he went through, I mean, it was just kind of nuts that whole it was a lot of drama and whatnot. Jerry, I don't consider Jerry to be like super intelligent, but I do think he is more honest and, you know, forthcoming with, you know, what he actually believes. Um, so it was interesting to see you have him on the podcast because it seems like I would think at face value, you guys would disagree on a ton. But again, I think that's maybe the difference between talking in person versus like on a forum. Like if you and Jerry Ward were on a forum, I could see you guys like going at it and be like, you're an idiot. And he's saying, you know, whatever. But I think when you talk to people in person or, you know, face to face, like whatever, it it comes across differently. And you can have more commonalities. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is such an interesting. This is like one of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we were watching it since the beginning. So we saw all the I was there in 2012 watching Jerry Ward uh, in Dubai at the time. Okay. And, uh, and I was watching Blaha. And at the time, I, you know, I've been following the steroid boards for a long time. But remember, I stopped for a while, stopped lifting. I just got back into lifting and I was trying out the stairs for a short period of time. That's how I got found these fitness channels. Okay. But then I kept watching them because I liked Jerry's personality on camera. He just seemed like the nicest guy. He seemed so honest. Uh, I didn't follow like from 15 onwards for a while. But and then Jason, and then I followed again at 2017 or 16, and I saw how they changed. Jerry's mm. personality had changed very much, and Jason had become like so many things that happened to him. So number one, Jason, I really want to know. <laughs> tell me, what did you talk about with Jason? Can he? Can he? Will he? Will he come on a podcast? Because let me tell you one thing, Jason thinks that I, I won't be nice to him. I will never. No guest on. I've had a guest on my podcast. Listen, I ask him. I know he has shoulder implants. I'm no idiot. By the way, I have white clavicles. If anyone does, it's me. When I was uh, mus very muscular, and I don't have unfortunate pictures when I was on high-dose androgens, but I had big shoulders. So this guy's on the podcast. He's a nice guy. I like him. But he has shoulder implants. And at one point, I was like, you know, I looked at him. I was like, your shoulders are, uh, what's, what's going on with your shoulders? You're 60. Because I know that's not possible. And he was like, no, no. I just have white clavicles. So people lie on my podcast. But if they're a guest, <laughs> I'll, never, I'll never comment directly. And nobody can sure. figure out who this is because it's so old. So the point is, if, if Jason ever wants to, I won't, like, if he wants to come on my podcast, I know everything about him. I, I'll let him tell us. I just find him interesting. And I think you can yeah. do it too. But I actually do think that, like, he, I, do, I think he's probably a reasonably intelligent person. Um, I, I just think he's, you know, whatever he was doing with the whole, like, fake mercenary stuff, whatever that whole business was, I don't know if he just got too far into, like, a hole and then <laughs> was just digging himself deeper. But, yeah, for a while there, he was, him, he and Jerry, you know, it's very interesting and this is a separate topic, but um, there's a guy, you know, a friend of mine, Abel Chabai has a podcast as well. And, and we do a lot of collaborative work together now. And we talk about on YouTube fitness, I feel I would be very stressed if this was like my primary vocation, because you see so many times somebody blows up for a year, two years, maybe three years. 
And then you look at their channel now and it's like, dude, you get like no views, you get no attention, anything like that. And then that's when they start doing these cringy things and they start having to, you know, come up like they're just such a different person. You know what I mean? I'll see people with 200,000 subscribers. I have like not even 4,000 subscribers and our videos get the same views. And it's just, and eventually, you know, my channel will probably die out too. And it's just, it is what it is, but it's, it's very insecure or sorry, um, like financially insecure way to go as far as like, this is all you do. And it's interesting to see the personalities change over time. And you have some exceptions where people, you, I'm sure, you know, Omar Yusof. I don't really, I never followed him. Okay. But so but, what's that? I heard about him from Jason's name dropping. Yeah, 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 right. So, but he's like one of the really original, original guys. And he's, you know, I don't watch this channel much anymore either, but he's a, he's at least stayed more true, you know, over the years. It wasn't like he got super cringy or anything like that. He's kind of stuck with his initial intent, which I can respect, so. Oh, there's a bunch of things to talk about there. First of all, the, the, what, they're, what they're called is Hajis. The Hajis would never attack my channel because I used to troll Jason on his channel with my new channel. I used to comment on his videos just saying, like, this is a groundbreaking video every time he would post a video. So, like, he would post, <laughs> repeat, you know how he repeats all the same content constantly because sure, yeah. all Jason does actually is just steal Westside Barbell information and then come and present it, barely mentioning that it, he just read an article from Louis Simmons and that's how he knows this. I did the same thing when I was 15 years old, Jason, if you ever see this. I was 15 years old. I did Grease the Groove. I did the Westside Barbell. I did Bulgarian. I did all that. You don't, you don't, the guy doesn't advance anything in his whole life. Jason has never introduced one thing creative. I actually, by the way, recently came up with one thing, not even from academia, not from a paper. I introduced a lot of things from academia that's not in the industry, but I came up with something myself, the combination of progesterone with GHB or 1,4-butan ideal to enhance sexual drive incredibly. It's extremely effective. Came up with it myself through experiment, uh, experimentation. By the way, Dan Duchesne, also used to just introduce from academic papers into the industry. Never came up with anything from himself that I know of. So that's very rare. Jason doesn't even introduce from papers. He just copies what other people are doing in the industry. So it's like ridiculous. Now, is Jason intelligent? Oh, obviously. He's obviously intelligent. He's over 100 IQ for sure. Is he, over, is he 140, like he says? No, no, no. He's not 140. Even if he's insane, he's not 140. He's 120, 115, something like that. That's Jerry, Jerry has no, no reason to comment on that, obviously. But... The point is the Hajis wouldn't attack me because I used to, they know, they know that I know what Jason is, first of all. And, and, I, and Jason should, so Jason will never come on the show, but I would be nice to him if he came on the show. And I would try to give him a chance to explain, you know. Now, what did he do when that happened to him? I think it's a, something called a schizotypal personality. It's a, there are some people that, um, this is a real mental illness. I mean, he has, he has some, it's not depression or anxiety. It wasn't like I'm gonna. I, I'm really gonna consciously believe that I'm tricking people into thinking I'm a mercenary. It was fear, fear turning his his uh, sympathetic nervous drive on. Maybe dopamine rushes. You know, dopamine. I don't know if you know this, but dopamine agonizes adrenaline receptors also. So do, high dopamine levels associated with schizophrenia, with bipolar disorder, and so on. So as dopamine rises, adrenaline rises. He's he's in a fight or flight mode. He wants to scare people away. He's been bullied in high school. He grew up. In Houston, maybe he was bullied. I don't know where he grew up, but maybe he was bullied. He got scared from Lane Norton, so he made up a thing. But he, but it doesn't make any sense. And that's where you see pathologic mental disorder. It doesn't make sense. It could never make anyone believe it. Nobody could have believed it. So when he said it, you knew, okay, it's not totally balanced. And since then, you've seen him change a little bit. And, you know, I, that's something that I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't uh, armchair diagnose somebody, but obviously has some kind of issue. And I don't think... 
I don't think that was evil. I don't think it was immoral. I think it was he was not in, in control of himself. However, afterwards, the the lie the lying in the last two years was a little bit uh, too much. You know, I see. He continues to lie about it. So that's that's where it gets annoying. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, I don't. As far as like the psycho like the uh, psychology of it all, that's totally out of my wheelhouse. But as far as I mean, I would. And I, I plan to, at some point, talk to both Jerry Ward and uh, Jason. And part of it is just like, dude, I, I watched years of your content. Like, it's just one of the great things about this podcast is I have gotten to have conversations with people that I never, I, you know, they, I just, somebody on YouTube, I never thought like I'd be having, or even like, you know, like personal relationships and stuff with some of these people where it's like, dude, like I've watched, like you were somebody I actually looked up to and now we're like talking regularly. Um, but for me, it's and, and also again one of the nice things about this being kind of a uh, hobby of mine rather than like a primary vocation is that some of my content is very educational you know i will have like a top phd in their field on and we will really get into it and, and people love that but some will just be more conversational you know it's just like hey you know just kind of catching up or it's more casual and I, and I like both you know i really like both here with you and i we're kind of going back and forth between the technical and then just obviously talking about youtube but I, I think for those guys, it was really interesting. And people kind of fed off of it. I, I agree with most of what you said about Jason. Um, and if he watches this, like I said, I mean, I had a totally normal conversation with him. He seemed very normal. Um, and I'd be happy to talk to him further. I think what I would say to him is that one of the issues he ran into was he was too extreme on opposite ends. So anybody who's extreme in any end, is going to run into issues, right? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> so any for those people that don't know, Jason would flip every six months from going like literally thinking that ketogenic like sugar is the devil and everyone is dying because of sugar and carbs and 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 you would be vegan or, right. or then you would flip to being vegan then you would flip to ketogenic diet right. then you would flip to like Westside Barbell doesn't work then you would flip to one exercise doesn't work then you would join this and that's fine for when you correct yourself, but here what you're talking about is the pathology of the ex really back and forth. It was like, yeah. And I think anybody who was on any extreme, if you're carnivore and only carnivore or key or I'm um, sorry, and like vegan and only vegan, most people I think can be like, uh, maybe the real answer is more in the middle, but he would be both, right? Like you said, he would be a far extreme and then another far extreme. And it's like, who, who are you going to have now? Who's left to like, like your content? With Jerry, I think, um, I, Jerry, I, I don't think he really did that much. I just disagreed with a lot of what Jerry said in terms of like a bodybuilding standpoint. Um, but that's just, you know, which we have part, different like, experiences. For example, like not, not personal things, but like which parts in terms of bodybuilding stuff? I think he, and again, I mean, it's been years, like at least five years since I've seen like anything consistent with him. But he would say things like, I felt like he, okay, so here's a good example. Um, he was somebody who used a lot of gear, right? I mean, he's talked about using tons of anabolics, growth hormone, insulin, um, folostatin, right? I mean, just things that have almost surely changed his, I don't want to say his genetic makeup, but have, have changed his set point, let's say, that he could ever come back to like naturally. Like he absolutely is going to have more muscle mass. And I remember him saying one time that he was like, he was like 195 lean. And he was saying how like, you don't keep anything from using gear over the years if you come off of it. And he was like, I was 20 years ago, natural, 175 pounds. Now, 20 years later, I'm 195 pounds. That's only 20 pounds in 20 years. You don't think I could have gained one pound per year naturally? And to my, what I would say is, no, I don't think you could do that. <laughs> You'd already been lifting for 15 years or whatever it was. There's zero chance 
that you didn't gain more long-term from that. So just things like that, where I would just hear him say things. And I just be like, I, I don't understand how a rational person could believe that. But again, it's not to hate on him personally. It's just, I so, just disagreed with so, some things. So there's two things going on here. The one things, one, one of them is probably uh, Jerry's analytical ability. Okay. Let's put it that way. Yeah. That's something else. That's not a, not a misinformation kind of element. He's just analyzing maybe incorrectly. The second thing is this question. What was he, what was his intention when he said this? There is an intention and it's very valuable. Look at this fellow called Greg, Duce, uh, Greg Doucette. Yeah, he has yeah. a panel with 800,000 people, mostly 14 year olds, buying $100 <laughs> cookbooks from him. Right. The cookbook says it's healthy. I've reviewed it in detail. It's filled with cadmium, horrible foods, high iron. He doesn't even know what health is. Presents himself as a health expert. More than that, though, he presents himself as an athlete and an expert on body composition. He also it carried all, along the title of Jason Blah with his natty or not stuff, calling out people that right. uh, just and obviously purely to grow his channel. Some of them are even in other languages. They're Chinese channels or whatever. I have a video from like a year ago that says, is Greg Doucette the new Jason Blaha? No, that, that's what he is. So no, yeah. Greg Doucette is the, is the first, as the I first I know of, well, Jason was the first fake Natty. So Jason, a couple of years ago or something like that, said he's on TRT and that he just size didn't change. And he used to take a gram of EQ. I was like, what do you, you think we believe this you idiot? Because you're living in Texas and drugs are illegal and the stalkers are after you. But at least don't lie about it. Just hide your gear in someone else's house, even if you don't have friends. But anyway, that's not the important thing. Greg Doucette is intentionally misleading his audience. He is specifically saying, I, he always mentions it intentionally. He works out, he says, this could just because of the TRT. It's because of my TRT that I'm like, and he tries to make it a joke. But he specifically says to them, I take 140 milligrams and not of testosterone and nothing else. It's true. He said he's taken 140 milligrams of testosterone and some Primo Bolan or something like that before. But currently, that's what he says. And he made a response video to me on his channel, me and Boston Lloyd, when I mentioned that this is not possible. And Boston agreed. The reason why it's not possible, the thinness of his skin. What happens when you stop using gear? Your muscle, the shape looks different. You can gain muscle easier, but you don't just hold muscle. It's not, unless you stay, unless you stay on, if you stay on TRT, you'll hold a bit more muscle than natural, but you'll get soft. Your skin will, will, will stop being thin. And that visual appeal that Greg relies on in his videos, which he's explicitly said he knows impacts his bottom line. He said that looking good on camera is equivalent to having a PhD. So he, that's why he always wears these tight weird shirts and keeps showing his body and flexing. His, he's always flexing. Even when he moves, he's flexing. I mean, we people used to lift. We can tell when someone's flexing. He's always flexing. He must be so uncomfortable. <laughs> but, and so if he's always flexing, why is he so reluctant to use more than 140 milligrams? It doesn't even make sense. But the point is, I've just had too much experience with steroids to, to think that this guy who had such horrible genetics, I've seen him when he was, and by the way, the other thing is, Look at his videos when he was supposedly fully natural and then see the difference progression when he turned. I mean, this is an actual fake natty that is only claiming HRT. It, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is like, it's important to call. That's what Jerry, I think, did. Now, the problem with Jerry is that then he went and called that guy uh, from Venice Beach. I, I always see him at the gym. Uh, the, the fake natty from Venice Beach Gold's gym um, with a the hair. Uh, they call him Trend, Mike, Michael Trent. Oh, Michael Hearn. Yeah, then he said Michael Hearn may be natural. Oh, yeah. Why people do that is because they're personal friends with Michael Hearn. So right. that I've met many people, because I live in L.A., 
that say that is just because they're friends they feel bad for them. Right, right, right. Yeah, I don't think we have to really even get into the whole is Michael Hearn natural. <laughs> um, yeah, I know you mentioned uh, you you had your podcast with Boston Lloyd, and I, I think you talk with him somewhat regularly, but daily, daily. Okay, so he is a very interesting character. Um, I don't, he's obviously, he's, as you said on your podcast, he's not nearly as um, in talks as he was, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, there was this one-year steroid transformation that blew up. And he, of course, was talking about the crazy doses. It was kind of amazing to me to see how, not like out of touch with it, but like he just has no care, it seems, for his health. Like he said, like he, like he won't go to a doctor. He, he, I mean, I don't know if he's dealing with like serious reflux. He was belching on your podcast like throughout the whole thing. But I mean, to be 28, I think he is. And just to be like constantly high blood pressure, just laughing, like, oh, I, I just won't go to a doctor. I just, as somebody who's kind of a hypochondriac, it's hard to even imagine that mindset. And I, you have to wonder, like, how long is he going to live if he continues that way? I mean, it's, it's kind of mind boggling. Yeah, it's, it's very sad. I talk to him about it every day. I try to convince him every day. That's the most important thing. You know, he's, he's a, he's, he has a good heart. He really does. Yeah, he's a yeah, I don't think he's a bad guy at all. He's, he's a very good guy. And he, he doesn't realize and he doesn't realize what, what, what he's going to do to his family. I talk to him about it every day. I try to convince him every day. Unfortunately, this stuff all began with this piece of shit account called GH. Sorry for swearing on your podcast. Maybe you can clip it up. But GH15.org. I don't know if you ever heard of it. GH15. Uh, yeah. Get big. I recently had about 15 emails sent from GH15 to me, and I've exposed them both on the Chad Nichols podcast, where Chad Nichols mentions that it was indeed Nasser Sambati who was feeding information to a bunch of people in Serbia, the couple of people who were writing the original account. And that's why it was inconsistent. There were two different people. And Nasser, it turns out, well, from what I can gather, it seems now at this point that I know the most about GH15, I think, than anyone other than himself, the current account holder because I've researched so much and today I will release a clip uncovering the background behind that but it was GH15 that killed Z's and killed a lot of people because they, nobody these these random people with horrible genetics never knew that if you take 200 milligrams of trombolone a day you will look crazy right you will change every single day it is true but if you do that, you will also die because androgens are directly toxic to the kidneys. Specifically, androgenic signaling at the androgen receptor causes hypertrophy of the kidney, which causes the glomeruli to break and develop scar tissue called glomeruli sclerosis, which is what Fouad Abiyad has been talking about on his podcast right now. He's unfortunately suffering from. Androgens directly do that, irrespective of your blood pressure. Trenbolone is too androgenic. When people were doing that, they were frying their kidneys and they were getting very strong sympathetic nervous drive. Their heart rates were always high. And for example, Z's one and did coke, doesn't understand what he's doing. 21-year-old killed himself. Now, I'm not blaming GH15. He didn't kill him. Every We all have our, you know, sub, you know, but but it was it became commercial. GH15.org, he's been charging his uh, steroid guys their percentage of their sales. To be honest, he, he, it's, a, it's a business. After Nasser died, uh -huh. it became a business. And even when Nasser was alive, it was there sort of to poison people, to poison the industry. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think so many people got influenced by this. And they started to think that, you know, when I grew up, I, even on, on the boards when I was younger, I, I remember arguing with a doctor when I was like a 16-year-old. No, heart enlargement from steroids is not true. Because the board said that, you know. And you now I find out. 
Yeah, the boards, every, everyone was saying it's all exaggerated. Look at these studies. Look at this. Look at that. And I was a kid. I didn't understand. Right. Now I find out, no, left ventricular hypertrophy, of course, happens from all kinds of athletic activities. But also, you could probably really limit it. You could really limit it if you knew what you were doing. Lower your heart rate intentionally with a beta blocker right after workout. You know, use a beta blocker multiple times if you want. I'm not telling people to do this, but. So, yeah. There's, there's yeah, I mean, and that that is one of those things, right? Like, if, if you it's tough because it's, it's not an area obviously that's study, right? Nobody is studying really. Okay. How can you use anabolic steroids safely? I'm not saying nobody's looking into that. I'm saying there's not going to be peer reviewed research on that. Right. So maybe, you know, you might say, Hey, if you're going to use anabolic steroids taken, you know, like an ARB and maybe you can prevent some of the negative remodeling of the cardiac muscles, but how often is that going to be talked about? Right. I mean, not, oh, not much. Yeah a beta blocker will actually reverse that remodeling of the left ventricular. Yeah, a little more than yeah. RV, yeah. Uh, not only will it not be studied, you know, uh, Dave, I don't know if you've been through the research, but it's actually, uh, most of the studies on steroids are from the 60s and they're very bad studies. They're not, uh, they're mostly about affinity to receptors, not mm -hmm. efficacy, meaning they don't study response elements often. When they do, it's a response element of like, that thing on the top of a male uh, chicken, the, the hen, uh, what's it called? Uh, I don't know. Whatever the, that's a weird word to use. But anyway, that thing, you know, the, the size of that thing, that's what they measure, for example. They measure the prostate of the rodent. Well, that's local response elements at the prostate. That's not at the muscle. That's not in a human's muscle. It's very different because the androgen receptor works differently in the prostate and in these other areas of masculinity. So they use that to look at like androgenic effects. They look at size with anabolic effects. But they're from the 60s. They're not very, uh, basically, my point is, it's very little studied. So basically, yeah. it's all about what people have experimented with. And very few people have cared enough about their clients to try to get them to do these things. So I remember hearing on one of your podcasts, you said um, low blood pressure is bad for the kidneys. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it also causes some kind of uh, stress on the kidney in terms of uh, I don't know exactly how it works, but the kid like below like a 90 systolic blood pressure is known to be dangerous for kidney health. Mm. I know this from reading nephrologist papers. I don't honestly know the mechanisms. See, a lot of what I what I do is basically I don't understand anatomy very well and I don't have any courses in chemistry or molecular biology. So I have no background. But what I do have is background in study design, statistical analysis and actually you know, I, I, my thesis was funded by the NHS, the health, health system of the UK. Yeah. So, so I know how to look at studies. So sometimes I don't understand the mechanism unless I'm really interested in it, then I'll go study it on my own. But as long as I can come up with something that seems uh, reliable, then I keep that in mind. So I know nephrologists all agree that low blood pressure causes damage to the kidneys, but I don't know why. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I've not really heard that much. I mean, obviously, there are other issues with low blood pressure. I just had not heard that there was a direct effect that was hurting the kidney. Certainly not, not like high, not certainly not like hyperfiltration, which comes from high protein, thick blood, um, you know, stuff like that. Blood pressure. Yeah. Um, I was curious. You mentioned if you don't want to say it on here, we can talk afterwards. But you mentioned somebody whose like head had doubled in size from I think it was from excessive growth hormone use. Do you remember that like anecdote? Doubled. Uh, you, I know. We talked about it. Oh, well, Nick Nick Trigilli on my podcast has talked about it tons of times. He's uh, he has a horn he developed here yeah. from growth hormone. And he has a horn right here. It wasn't there before. He has one. Jay Cutler has four. There's two up here and two up here. If he ever shows in the light, you'll see there are two patches of calcification here. I mean, four, sorry. And you think and, that's just from the extreme growth hormone usage? Oh, no, it happens because there's a couple of... So 
A lot of people, for example, De Palombo. De Palombo has a calcification on his leg, somewhere on his one of his leg. I don't know if it's the femur, but he has uh, like a ball of, of calcification there. So a couple of things happen. I've, I've looked into it. The, the the cranial development it has like sort of like uh, I forgot what they're called, but they're like uh, places in which it can expand if mm -hmm. there's more growth. Now because of our growth plates locking, our some areas of our body continue to grow. When you take growth hormone, usually your toes grow a lot, not your feet. Actually, people think it's their feet, and your feet get wider. Your toes grow, which is really annoying, by the way. Right? So just to be clear, unless you're a climber or something and you need toes, it's really annoying. It actually makes you work walk worse and everything. And sometimes you'll also notice some people's limbs. And this has never been discussed before, but I've noticed this. Some limbs will grow slightly more than others, or some hand, like your hand, will grow slightly. Your ears will usually grow. Nose will usually widen. Um, and then, like for example, different people get different things. Palumbo has a line here. I didn't really get that much. Some people get a chin growing. Most people's head overall enlarges. But originally, it'll start with bumps. So, for example, I have a bump here. And it so in your three work. years, you would use growth hormone too, not just antibiotics? No, only for a maximum of total like six months. But I was I was trying GH15's BS. You know, yeah, I was using yeah. 15 units of pharmaceuticals. So I saw the changes and I got a bump here that I never had before. I used to have a perfectly shaped head. So that's how I noticed. I was really annoyed. I was on a lot of forums when I was like younger. I mean, like there was a forum discussbodybuilding.com. I was in, in high school. I mean, just that one alone, I must have had 10,000 posts. And I mean, it was just, and like you, it was just, I was relatively for my age, very educated on these topics. And, you know, I didn't discuss my age. So people just thought like, I was this intelligent guy just giving this information, right? Meanwhile, I'm like a 140 pound kid on there, just like doling out advice. But, but I mean, to be fair, the, the advice was very reasonable. I mean, it's stuff that I would still say today, you know, some of it, so. Well, you know, the thing is, that's interesting that you bring that up, even on YouTube now. I mean, I don't, I don't, can't, I haven't seen many pictures of you, but to me, you look like, I don't know, maybe you're natural or I don't know if you lift weights, but the point is, you're not uh, Greg Doucette with the, no. with, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you lift weights. What a great comment. No, no I, what, I mean, what I mean is, I can't, no, honestly, I, I usually can't tell someone lifts weights unless you use steroids because yeah, right. I had 18.5 inch arms. That's what I considered lifting weights. I wanted to ask you about that, actually. Your, yeah. your, like, so kind I, of your best stats. No, I mean, just my arm size. I, I mean, when I was younger, I don't know why when I was old, I stopped training my shoulders. So that, that affected me. But I was like just uh, probably the best I was at was 220. Uh, maybe what people would call 12% body fat or 13. Mm, I used to dumbbell curl uh, 90 pounds, almost 100 pounds sometimes, I think. I used to do partials on a preacher curl with 140, 150 pounds. And I guess that comes from your, because I remember on your Nick Jolie podcast, and, and it's got to be your arm wrestling background, because I remember you saying that you were only curling 60s for six now. And like, that's still a lot of weight for most people if it's a controlled rep. So you must have had very strong biceps and forearms from your arm wrestling background. Probably, I could probably strip curl uh, on a preacher 80, probably at that time. At that or, time. Yeah, maybe more. I don't know. And how much do you weigh now, like arm size now, if you know? I don't know. I don't work out. I don't lift weights. I only climb and I uh, bike ride uh, because of, you know, various reasons. But what I was, was what I was trying to say is this. On the forums, we didn't know what the people really knew. And there was a lot of misinformation and stuff like that. The great thing about YouTube is that people can use more papers. We now have the Scholar. People can, uh, you know, also you can sometimes read people's faces to try to judge if they know what they're talking about or not. But it's interesting that if you if you talk at all about something like lifting and you don't lift like myself, 
and I, I look like I don't lift, of course, because I don't lift. So most people will not take you seriously. Like a lot of people sure. come and I think like, who's this skinny guy with 10 inch arms telling me whatever, you know what I mean? Even if you're citing information. All right. So sure. it's interesting how credibility and authority, and I don't like to refer back to that stuff. So I intentionally try not to post pictures of myself before or whatever, even though I don't have many, but I, I try not to because the message is there for those who need to hear it, you know, and about life cycles of YouTube channels. I think that there's two ways to prevent this. One way is by your audience becoming your friend. If your audience gets to know you well and likes you, they'll always tag along with you. Right. Whereas if you're just sitting and looking at the camera and bitching about, oh, sorry, excuse me, and complaining about your day, then people will, maybe they'll get to know you, but they won't feel like a conversation with you. And this is something that Fuad Abiyad, for example, really learned in our, in our, in the fitness industry. Like they talk about things like how many times they use the bathroom a day on this channel. You know, that's what they talk about. But you, you, then there's three of them. So you listen for a while and then you start to feel like you're one of the boys. These yeah. are your friends. So every week you tune in. I think this builds loyalty. This is what Joe Rogan did. Really, sure. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then the other way to do it is to be so good at your field that there is no other channel that can compete. So, for example, right now, there's certainly no channel on YouTube that has better information on the brain stuff than you. There's no, there's nothing. I know that, but people don't know about me yet. But hopefully, eventually, they'll know about it. So, they'll be able to go to my playlist, like my serotonin playlist, my acetylcholine playlist, and you go from beginning to end, and you have 400 citations that you don't have to read, and they take you through it. Hopefully, if the demand then for the subject is there, that'll continue. But in fitness, like we have a lot of Jason Blahas, a lot of people sure. repeating what other people are saying. Like, I'm not sure. Is, is Raytel, for example, I've never followed, so I don't know what he does exactly. And I know like, I know the starting strength guy has some unique elements of his programs. I don't know about Israel how unique he is. I don't know. Mm. But for example, mo most of those guys, I don't think they add that much that's new. It's mostly Louis Simmons with the, with the conjugate thing. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there is some new stuff. Pavel, for example, the grease, the groove stuff, that was really new. And those people will never be forgotten. But if you don't introduce anything new, like Dan Duchesne will never be forgotten because he changed bodybuilding. Yeah. But if you don't introduce anything new, then you're just a different face with the same story. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's certainly true. Um, I think what you said about like almost like creating the relationships is big. I mean, I will say that I am surprised given and, and I you know, I get fairly personal on the podcast and my own videos and I try to relate to people and I will answer questions. Like I, I always answer the comments and stuff. And I am surprised by the number of people given my, the size of the channel, by the number of people who reach out to me, both in email and Instagram who either want coaching or just, you know, say very nice comments. Um, and I always try to engage people with that because to me, I mean, it's actually enjoyable. I mean, that's my, the most enjoyable part of this podcast is the interactions. I don't like to have to like edit crap. And, and you know, I don't, I also don't post about stuff that like, um, I recently posted about like calf training and how I think it's like largely genetic. And I, I didn't, I did an experiment where I didn't train, still haven't trained my left calf for over a year is the exact same size as my right now. Like there's just no, and to me, I'm like, that's actually something interesting to post about, but you're not going to see me ever post like here is how to squat, take a three second eccentric, pause at the bottom. Like that is so boring to me. And like you said, there's a million other people who do it. So why, what am I adding of any value for that? And I, I, that stuff's valuable for somebody, but go watch the thousand channels who can give you that, you know, go watch a West side, had a squat or something, not me. Unfortunately, this is the problem. And I've been, I've been experiencing this right now. So originally I was trying to make videos that have not been there before. Like, for example, I made a video, which recently Derek from more plates, more dates. And then 
uh, vigorous steve uh, also made the same video i made it six months ago it actually has jason law's face on it it's why bodybuilders age so quickly so mm -hmm. for example that's not been discussed before i thought it would be cool i used to make videos like that i get questions constantly please make a video on like on like L-theanine or please make a video on on clenbuterol. So for example, and I made a video on clenbuterol, but I did it in, in from an academic perspective. So it was like it's something different. But people literally want my opinion on the most basic stuff that everyone else is talking about. Once they once enough people join the channel, that's what right. I've noticed. Yeah. So no, I think fall into that, and it's it's so for people like you and I who don't maybe necessarily need this job, like it's not a job. The, uh, basically, I'm only doing this because I like it. I fell into it by accident. I was trying to help Amin Ali last year when his son was dying. He asked me to help him for his um, for his work. So that's and then I realized I loved it because interacting with the clients and and being able to teach them some things about psychology also that I learned from my own struggles. I loved it. And then I said maybe if I could transition to this with a pay cut. So when you're like that, you don't want to do this mindless, mind numbing. Right. You know? Now, one thing, last thing I want to say. This squatting, how to squat, because you mentioned earlier, maybe there is a way to squat and deadlift that is healthy long term. I've just recently talked about this on my channel, but I do not believe so. Not at high weights. In fact, Louis Simmons is the person who I think mostly uh, spread the message that squatting, if you know how to squat properly with the correct form, is not damaging. This is not true. This depends on the structure, for example, of your knee. You may have a knee, for example, that over time pulls on the cap at the end of it, which starts rubbing on your knee and causing damage. This happened to me, for example, because I have a quad dominance or something like that. I was squatting proper form, okay? Or for example, just think of it like this. The spine was not meant to carry 600 pounds, period. It was not meant to carry anything, okay? It was not meant to carry anything. So putting, I have now a disc, you know, wherever my squat used to come, every guy who squatted heavyweights has that bump in the back of their neck. Okay, I didn't have that naturally. That's not something good. You're not supposed to carry that, and especially, of course, do what Ronnie did, which was this jumping, you know, when he was squatting. But but even just normal squatting, you know, and uh, squatting 500 pounds like uh, Jason is doing in his 40s is a is a very bad idea. Very, very, very bad. Idea. Well, I think um, if again, if you said that to me at 18, I would have said no. Like you know, you can definitely do it the caveat that you threw in is important, which you said with heavy weights, I do believe that, you know, you, you get for health and longevity, obviously I, well, I mean, we can get into why you don't resistance train, which kind of surprises me, but we'll get into that. Um, but I, I do believe that resistance training and load bearing exercises is healthy, but even people I highly respect like Eric Helms would say that he said something along the lines of like powerlifting is just, slowly accepting your body degrading or something like that, you know, where, and, and I do believe like, I don't do one rep maxes at all, or even close to one rep maxes anymore, other than like, like I do it on overhead press. It's just more of an ego thing, but, <laughs> um, but really yeah, I just, one, I just of worst, one of the worst exercises for your health. It's overhead more, press. Yeah. It's for the shoulders. It's a really bad exercise. Very, I used to, I was very strong at it. I damaged my shoulders. Everybody will eventually dip. Same thing. Even the people that think they can tolerate it, like blah, you yeah. stop eventually. If you get over 150 pounds, you'll stop. Your shoulders are not meant to move that way. And you're not meant to look at Louis Simmons' back. Check out his back. His back is not healthy after all. He ended up having multiple, multiple surgeries. It's your body degrading over time. But what you're talking about is different. You're saying like 150 pounds for 25 reps or 40 reps or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm saying if you're using 405 for 20 reps, which I used to be able to do, if you're doing that, you're still damaging yourself. So it's just the weight. I think so. Yeah. I think it's just the amount of weight. And the reason I don't res resist and strain is because I'm just 
not far off from when I was obsessed with it that I'm scared if I started doing it, I might add in an extra meal with a little bit of extra protein, or I might eat a little bit too much meat, or I might get a little bit tempted. So I'm trying to stay with two things that I enjoy. I like to get back to it. Yeah, of course, but not not heavy ever again. I'll do like 60 year old workouts. But, but what I do is I, I like cycling. And I, when I cycle, I listen to podcasts. Like maybe I'll start listening to yours as well. And the other thing I do is climbing. I like climbing because I used to be into grip strength. I was really into grip strength in high school. And uh, climbing is really fun because there's still a bit of a strength element to it. I've done a little bit of rock climbing. Um, I just, so I had a, a couple of kids in my class who were into it too. And they just talked about how bad it was for their fingers. And again, dentist can't afford it. If you know, you so tendon something happens, I just going back to the whole jujitsu thing, I, I just avoid anything that I could just get screwed over with there. I'll give you a quick, quick tip about that from our, from my like the very long experience in the grip boards. The thing that damages the joints the most is when you grab something and then you get pulled. It's like, it snaps away. Those right. people get arthritis really quickly. Like judo is the worst of all like then Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, stuff like that, where you're holding and people are ripping the gi away from you. Mm. So um, in rock climbing, if you're jumping, like people jump on those boards, yeah. that's horrible because you're jumping and there's that force. Yeah. If you, re- if you do want to ever strengthen your hands without necessarily harming them, you might look at block weights, which Blah claims to use, but never does it on camera because he doesn't do it. And everyone, anyone's listening to this, they'll find this stuff funny because Blah is hilarious. By the way, I love, I, I actually like Blah. You know, I really like because he's entertaining. He lies every episode. He's in his own world. He pretends he's doing exercises off camera that he's not doing, sled training, ab exercises. Anyway, so if you ever want to train your hands, the safest way is block weights. You just hold them. Go to uh, ironmind.com or Sorex. Sorex uh, being Richard Soren's uh, company. Great equipment. I have all the equipment. Block different block sizes. Just hold them for sta- uh, static holds. You'll let's see your hand will get thicker, and your hand will get much stronger. It'll help you with everything. Hmm. I'm gonna take a guess and say, just from the conversations we've had, that you're a fan of Peter Atia. Is that right? Absolutely. Peter Atia is the only person that I, other than Derek from More Plates, More Dates, that I totally approve of everything I've heard from him. He, uh, but he does not. Does he have a PhD? Peter Atlia is a of a caliber A1, A1 everything. Now, undergrad, Stanford in mathem- some kind of mathematical engineering, something like that, mechanical engineering. Then MD from, I think, Johns Hopkins. And then he went to McKinsey, which is the number one strategy consulting firm, which I also almost started at in Dubai. And instead, I went to private equity. He is an A1 level mind. It's not like the guy who, like Lane Norton, who went to middle of nowhere university, which I've argued with him about before. This is a guy A1. And that's why he has all those contacts. You see the doctors he brings in? Those are leading. He actually knows who publishes the research. His content is amazing. I love it. I love it. I can't praise him enough. Yeah, and I, I follow, I've listened to, um, well, I've more recently listened to him on like The Drive, his podcast. It's very interesting. Um, yeah, once you told me that you were, I think, either interested in taking or you are taking rapamycin, I was like, this guy's got to be <laughs> a fan of Peter's here. I've been taking rapamycin, but... Um, what I would say, just as a caveat, is for people who think to or who listen to Atlia and get a little too excited, I want you guys to go to Wikipedia and search the history of fasting sanatoriums. You'll find that the oldest fasting sanatorium in Europe is about 150 years old and is continuously operating. 
you can see a lot of a list actually of fasting advocates and see how old they were when they died. I know this is a scientific is not a statistical analysis, but what you'll notice is that there aren't that many of them who lived for that long. And it's uh, people have been fasting for 40 days, for two weeks, for a week, uh, the whole century, the whole 20th century. And it's not something new. It's just now we know some science behind it. But for example, caloric restriction extends life in all animals. But even in lab species of lab mice, some species will have a longer lifespan on a ketogenic diet than on a calorically restricted diet that has glucose in it. Right. So just depending on the strain, forget about the different, the wild mice versus the lab mice, because the lab mice are more likely to get cancers. Right. Which is a huge issue. And then and then rats. And then we go to other animals. And for example, you can notice also that the rapamycin studies or studies similar to that will show life extension of like 40% in rodents, about 10% in dogs. So we should expect in larger animals even less in our own lives. So don't get, I mean, my opinion is don't get too, you know, David Sinclair. I, I love that movement. I really support it. But the fasting uh, movement, you mean? Yeah, I mean, like, no, not the fasting, the longevity, the ending uh, age movement. Specifically, Aubrey de Grey is a little too far. It's not very realistic, if that's what I mean to say. Yeah, I, I've seen, you know, Walt, uh, Walter Longo talk about the fasting stuff as well. And I'm just not, I don't know. I mean, everybody's going to have their biases, right? As, as far as, like, their own research and, and everything. You know, you have, like, Dom D'Agostino is a very big advocate of ketogenic diet. And um, Walter Longo, very into, like, the fasting stuff. And, again, it's not an area that I've looked very deeply into but it really seems and I, I think peter tia would stand by this that we don't have enough evidence to support that fasting is really going to increase lifespan i know he does fasting he's done a few seven day fasts i believe um i for a number of reasons do one 24-hour fast a week but i don't know if there's a lot of research to show that it's really likely to increase human lifespan Ah, there, there. No, I mean, it's it's most likely going to increase lifespan because of caloric restriction in general, and because of it's probably will. But I'm saying it probably will do it for a year or two years. Right. Something yeah. very very minimal to the point that it won't affect you maybe that much. Um, I would recommend the circadian code from Sachin Panda uh, okay. because you tell me you're doing one 24-hour fast a week, which is uh, of course not enough time um, unless you're on a ketogenic diet for much to happen, but you, you may uh, get a lot more. Uh, he doesn't uh, reference the book much, but it's a good summary of his research. He's the leading uh, researcher in like uh, time-restricted eating in, in, the, in the, the daytime. Yeah, I know the name. Do you know Dr. Ralph Esposito? Yes, I've heard his name. So yeah, I've been on the podcast a couple of times. He's recommended Sachin Panda to me as well. Yeah, Sachin Panda's, uh, he, he's uh, like, you know, you've heard of Walker for sleep? Well, oh, um, yeah. This name. guy is like, Matthew this Walker. guy. Yeah, who has a book on sleep, uh, yeah. how, how, but or whatever. Uh, this guy, Sachin Panda, is like that, but for the whole circadian clock, sleep oh, as well as awake, as well as food, as well as everything, is really useful stuff. Voltalonga has shown that chemotherapy works better with the fasting mimicking diet. That's been yeah. shown. Sure, but, but he sells the, a product for it as well, doesn't he? He does. He sells a product for it, and uh, none of all, none of the results, uh, all of the profits go for re his research. It's not a. Okay. Yeah, he's not profiting, profiteering off it. David Sinclair is rich. David Sinclair is worth, I think, over $100 million or so. Because oh, wow. David Sinclair changed the whole wine market. That resveratrol thing, which is barely in red wine, <laughs> boomed the sales of red wine for like three years. And then wow. he, got, he got very uh, famous around the world. Wow, okay. 
Um, yeah, you know, I think it's, it's been, it's, I like talking to people like you where there's certain areas where we might disagree maybe, but it, you know, I can tell you're very knowledgeable. We'll probably, I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking in the future as well about certain areas, but I know you, you help people. It sounds like not with training specifically. I'm not sure if it's longevity. Like when you have a client come to you, what is that largely in? Um, most of my clients are either weightlifters who want to live longer or high net worth individuals who want to live longer, including some billionaires, actually. And the others are people who have anxiety, depression, or sexual dysfunction, because, or addiction, because I've mentioned those topics on my channel. Basically, I feel like clients come to me when they hear something I say in my story that resonates with them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I don't think I should be the person that any billionaire goes to to live longer. You should go to Peter Atelier. He's a doctor. He can prescribe things directly. He knows everything I know. We read the Who's same. That? Peter oh, oh, Pierce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he knows everything. I, I'm doing. He, I don't know anything more than he does about longevity. But I do know more about the brain and stuff like that for sure. But you know, I always recommend my family and other people to go to Peter Atelier for for the longevity stuff. Personally. Is he accessible to? Can you just? Oh, go? He's booked now, actually. But oh, before he was a year ago, he was still accepting clients. Yeah, you know, I was sending people to him. Yeah, I, will, I imagine he's pretty expensive. I mean, you, you, honestly, you could learn everything you need to from just listening to his podcast. He's very, that's what I love about him. He's also not commercial. He's really trying to get information out there. You know, I started using the SGLT2 inhibitors three weeks ago, but only because of him, because he had that guy on, I forgot his name now, but the heart guy in which they discussed the SGLT2 inhibitors. And I was shocked. And now I'm thinking, this thing's an interesting medication because... It makes people hypoglycemic. By the way, one thing we didn't mention, we were talking about earlier, this like extremes with Blaha and nutrition. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, do you notice that the nutrition world is a world where sometimes people with mild mental disorders like hide out and they develop like really almost religious ideas about certain opinions oh, and sure. fight about it. They love to fight about it. Yeah, you absolutely. Yeah. Do you like that kind of subject? Because this is what turns me off nutrition. I try not to make videos about that and I try to go into I think nutrition is very interesting. Um, it's just, I don't know how much pet, like, again, when you get like YouTube and social media, you have to have some sensationalism or else you're, you know, generally not going to have a huge following. And so I think people they'll see like, you know, they have, there's like this much evidence to show it's helpful and they act like it's this much evidence and they just take things to extremes. Um, and even, you know, I'm on a, a Facebook group again, like related to a, a diet we'll talk about later. And he like, people will be so extreme. And I'm like, look, this diet was put out 20 years ago. The author of it, who was actually pretty scientific died 15 years ago. I guarantee you that they would be along with the updated science. And, but you're acting like this is gospel, even though it's so old. And you, you see that with a lot of things. And um, I think probably a major problem is people, don't know how to think scientifically. And in no way am I trying to say like, I'm like this great scientist or anything. I think probably the best, like you pointed out, PhDs are probably much better at this than MDs on average, but at least MDs, you largely learn like the, the scientific process and you understand that, oh, this one study does not mean that definitively this is the answer. Yes. And the common person just doesn't understand that way of thinking. And that's the biggest problem that I see. That's the biggest problem I have on my channel. Yeah. The biggest problem in, in people accepting anything I do is, is I'm, it doesn't happen often, but off, but it's like once a week, I get a message saying, 
not contradicting me, just saying, by the way, this has been shown. And then they show the paper and they're like, oh, this is conclusive. And I'm like, <laughs> realize that I just read 300 papers on this subject. And I've actually seen 40 different studies, including two meta-analyses of the studies I read. And I came to the conclusion that the, the weight of the evidence was on one end. And that's what I said. But the response was like, he picked one study, which I also read, which was in the, you know, and doesn't, and the problem is you don't know study design and you don't know statistical analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I used to design studies for professors for a living. I mean, I, I didn't have much money when I was in college, so I had to work at the lab. So I would deal with it all the time. Study, I would see the differences in how study design affects the effects you can see statistically. Unfortunately, most people don't understand that. I think the best thing somebody can get from undergrad is a modality of thinking, a yeah. way to analyze problems. And then basic mathematics and statistics and logic. Okay. And then they can approach anything with a toolkit and, and, and learn. For sure. All right, man. Well, this was a great talk. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, so where can people find more of your stuff? LeoHanLongevity.com and on YouTube. Thanks so much, David. I really appreciate it. It was, it was really an honor to talk to you. And thank you for having me on. And we should talk more about Blah next time. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks, man.